Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Genzel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is a podcast series in which I talk to the people who made some of my favorite movies. Today's guest is Ted Nicolaou, best known for his many collaborations with producer Charles Band, including the popular Subspecies series. Ted started out as a sound recordist on Toby Hooper's cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then went into editing, working on films like Roar, Trancers and Ghoulies. As a director and oftentimes as a writer too, he made films like the offbeat horror comedy Terrorvision, charming fantasy movies for children like Dragon World or Leap in Leprechauns, and of course the aforementioned subspecies films, a series of vampire horror films which make perfect use of their impressive Romanian locations and manage to mix vampire lore, dramatic horror and a dose of eroticism with just the right amount of tongue-in-cheek B-movie attitude. Our conversation, however, revolves around a lesser-known film which Ted directed, The St. Francisville Experiment, a found-footage horror film that came out shortly after The Blair Witch Project made its bark on the horror genre. The film tells the story of a group of filmmakers who set out to spend the night at a haunted Louisiana mansion, hoping to encounter the ghosts of the victims of Delphine LaLaurie, the real-life New Orleans socialite who brutally tortured slaves in the early 1800s. Ted was brought into the film after some elements had already been shot, and he encountered a production which wasn't prepared as carefully as it should have been. In our interview, Ted relates how he came on board of the film, how he handled the initial shoot without much room for directorial influence, and how he and the production team then went about to restructure the film and add elements and reshoots, resulting in a horror film that wears the influence of Blair Witch on its sleeve, but manages to create a chilly, atmospheric mood and several effective scare scenes of its own. The interview was conducted in connection with our German-language podcast Lichtspielplatz, so if you speak German, please visit lichtspielplatz.at and check out episode number 68, which features an in-depth discussion of the St. Francisville experiment and many other found-footage horror films. Also, make sure to listen to our interviews with found-footage filmmakers Dean Aliotto, Brian Leslie, Stefan Avalos and Ron Bonk here on Talking Pictures. If you enjoy my conversation with Ted Nicolaou, please visit TalkingPicturesPodcast.com to check out more interviews and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So without any further ado, here is director Ted Nicolaou. So yeah, Ted, I understand that the San Francisville experiment has a little bit of a complicated history and that um, I think it started out as a real documentary and that you came in later during the process. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about the history of the film and at which point you came on board? Yeah, uh, I was working at the time for Charles Band at a company called Full Moon. And Full Moon had sort of a shaky relationship with Kushner Locke because When Charlie needed money, he would go to Kushner Lock to, to finance some of his movies. And Charlie called me into his office one day and said, hey, I was going to go direct this uh, Night in a Haunted House movie, uh, but I can't do it. And I don't know why exactly. Maybe he discovered it, there were going to be some problems or something. But he asked me to go and, and oversee the shoot in this haunted house. So it sounded kind of interesting to me. Um, uh, but when I arrived in uh, Louisiana for the kind of prep for the night of shooting, uh, basically what I found was the cast uh, who had already been assembled, uh, the producer, Paul Salamoff, 
and uh, Dana, I can't remember her last name, who was a production executive at Kushner Lock, had already started shooting the, the kind of background interviews and uh, the material that would kind of set up the, the ghost story in a way. And uh, what they shot was actually very effective in kind of setting up the the fear that uh, that would kind of infect the audience as they watched the movie. Um, so I kind of walked into it and met everybody and uh, went to the haunted house to kind of see what was prepared, because basically it was going to be a story that was four people in a haunted house shooting with their own video cameras uh, at, with no interference from the production company and to see kind of what happens. Um, so the house was supposed to be rigged with certain kind of haunted house effects that could kind of be triggered in a way that would uh, terrify the, the participants. Um, but when I got there, basically, the it was basically uh, uh, not an abandoned, but a rented uh, old plantation house. And we had a little trailer in back where we were going to monitor the goings on in the house. Um, and, and when I said, okay, let's see all the ghost effects that we have prepared here. The only one that was really set up was the uh, flying chair, mm. which was very effective uh, in its, in its own right, but that was the only thing. And so really we had to scramble to figure out how are we going to like, kind of generate some scares throughout a whole night of shooting. Um, so all we could come up with were basically kind of like creating sounds and uh, wiring doors so they would kind of creak open and, and a few things like that. So uh, I, I'd sort of been tricked into participating in the, in the movie <laughs> that was not very well uh, pre-produced. Um, so basically we met, I met all the, the actors who were going to be in the film and Dana and Paul and uh, the sun went down and we started shooting. Basically the, the participants had uh, cameras, flashlights, some food to eat and uh, a packet of instructions that would sort of kind of give them assignments so that they would have mm -hmm. to go into different areas in the house. And uh, then we kind of put them into the house and then sat in the trailer and just kind of listened uh, to their to the audio to kind of understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting way to direct. I mean, how much can you sort of um, uh, influence what's happening in a setup like this? Yeah, no, it was impossible. It was impossible. Basically, we had to kind of... Uh, I think the the four actors had been kind of uh, coached a little bit on, or maybe they had talked among themselves about what kind of roles they would play where, uh, you know, Tim would be the kind of groovy filmmaker, uh, kind of laughing everything off. And Paul would be like the, the uh, kind of snarky guy. And Madison is, was kind of a psychic uh, new ager. And uh, Ryan Larson, she would be kind of the, she was sort of like a California girl slash history major. Uh, so basically there wasn't much I could do except listen and pray that something interesting <laughs> would occur. Uh, and and like a, a lot of found footage films, 
I think it's mostly kind of made in the cutting room and that's where most of the work occurred. Um, so for the night of the shooting, we would kind of throw rocks at the walls of, outside the house and try to make bumps in the night and little things to scare them. But I think basically they scared themselves just kind of uh, <laughs> pumping themselves up for going up the staircase, which was kind of spooky, and going into the attic, which was really the only room of the house that really had a vibe to it that was that was kind of terrifying. I mean, it, it, it was sort of so kind of uh, thoughtlessly pre-produced that uh, the house itself, you know, the occupants had just kind of put all their bed sheets and towels and linens and stuff in a in cabinets. And so basically it was an occupied house, but just the people were off on vacation someplace. <laughs> um, but it definitely had the kind of creaky old splendor of a Louisiana plantation house. So the actors, it sounds like the actors knew that they were, I mean, that this is a fictitious story, but they were sort of reacting spontaneously to stuff that they didn't know what to expect, um, in a sense. Is that correct? Yeah, I think they they knew they were participating in a fictional film, but because of the interviews and the, the backstory of Madame LaLaurie is like so horrifying that it can't help but kind of infect your imagination when you're sitting in a dark room and that supposedly uh, uh, was connected to her. But um, I mean, we basically shot that night and then and spent like months kind of cutting it together and trying to make it uh, interesting. And then uh, Peter Locke of Kushner Locke, the company that was going to release the film, said, no, we have to reshoot, we have to shoot some more material. So then we ended up mm -hmm. going back and shooting two or three more uh, days, uh, you know, weeks apart, trying to add more kind of scares and more kind of interesting occurrences to the story. Do you remember which scenes that you added in, during the reshoot? Yeah, we added some scenes, uh, actually some scenes that, that uh, I don't know what version of the film you've seen, but uh, the, the version that was left when I left the cutting room had a totally different ending than the version I see on Amazon now. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I don't know who cut it out or why, if it was too grotesque or if it was just too outlandish. Uh, I, I don't know exactly. But yeah, we shot, um, basically we kind of found a house in LA that had sort of some exteriors and some basement spaces and some interiors that uh, would seem to match the interiors of the of the plantation house. And we shot a sequence and it's been a while since I've seen the film. I don't know if it's even in the film anymore where they sit down underneath a chandelier and the chandelier comes crashing mm -hmm. down. Okay, mm -hmm. so so we shot that. We shot a scene where there's a cockroach in somebody's sandwich. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, in Ryan's sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we shot everything having to do with the uh, bedroom where Madison goes and sees the ghost reflected in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And everything that where Tim goes exploring by himself in the third act of the movie uh, and finds the, the hidden doorway in the closet and 
it goes down into um, an underground passageway. We shot, and I don't think it's in the film anymore, uh, Ryan getting sucked down through a hole in the floor. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not in the film, is it? Um, yeah, it is. It is, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, we shot Tim being dragged down the hallway. We shot, um, we kind of came in uh, on the night of shooting to kind of uh, at, at the end of the night of shooting in the, in the first uh, uh, week of production at, at the plantation house, we came in and shot some additional scenes of, you know, camera rushing downstairs and things like that to kind of add to the, the, the kind of terror of the moment. Um, but then we shot a, a whole ending uh, where, oh, we, we shot the discovery down a staircase of the medical mm -hmm. kit. Um, and we shot an ending in a torture chamber where, uh, where I believe Paul is uh, found chained up or Ryan is found chained to a table. Uh, mm -hmm and a ghost is appearing or the, a door is slamming. Was that in the, in the version mm -hmm. that you saw? It was. Yeah. So it's um, not in the American version. Or did you see it? You saw it way back when it was first no, released? I, I have this DVD. That's the European DVD. Oh, huh, okay. Yeah. And so, that's the ending that's, that's on it. Ah, interesting. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that because that, I mean, it's, it, it, it maybe goes a little over the top in terms of the, the sense of reality of the story, but it certainly kind of made for an effective horror mm -hmm. film ending. Uh, so we we basically uh, kind of went in and shot each of those scenes and tried to find a way to make it seem that the camera is is a participant in each of the scenes and dropped it in a way that it could capture the action that's going on uh, even after the actual actor has, has lost their camera. Um, so it was kind of an interesting challenge in a way to imagine how to cover a scene when you're when you're so limited in in the point of view of the camera. Mm -hmm. uh, so then it was a matter of of much, much, much more editing to try to uh, incorporate all these uh, reshoots into the movie in a way that would seem kind of seamless and organic to the film. Mm -hmm. I know you have a background as an editor, so I was wondering if that helped you in structuring uh, the film and the proceedings and what you just described, uh, the, the stuff that you needed to fill out the story in a sense. Yeah, uh, for me, you know, I started out in film school to be a director, uh, but I loved editing too. And um, when I first came to Los Angeles, I got work as an editor kind of immediately. And, and I feel like editing between writing, directing, cinematography and editing, they're all kind of equal in my mind in terms of the contribution to the film. And uh, editing, I think is a great way to begin for a director because you kind of can understand how a scene can be stitched together uh, in a way and, and with a minimum amount of, um, of, of camera angles really and so yeah so editing has has been like you know has has kind of been my foundation as a director to know what you need and uh how to achieve it and what angles are kind of the the, the right angles to uh, to shoot each each action 
and to make it kind of cut together. So, so yeah, I mean that, uh, and, and for this film, I sat with the editor kind of every day and all day trying to, uh, because uh, editing a documentary, and this is kind of like a documentary, you're, it's like you're totally free and there's no real screenplay to, to help you assemble what you're doing. So, so yeah, editing is, is really the, the, it's the key to making movies, I think. Mm -hmm. So I, the, the film didn't have a screenplay. Did you have some sort of outline? Did you have some sort of, uh, I don't know, sketches on <laughs> what was going to happen? No, it was a big surprise. You know, it was going to be a <laughs> surprise. That's the, I mean, the, the, the basic idea, I mean, they, they had, like I said, the, the, the actors had uh, a information packet that kind of mm -hmm. said, okay, now go up and go explore the second floor. And, um, look in the closets and and uh, check your e-meters for any uh, uh, ghost activity. So so they had certain uh, certain assignments that that were mm. like the structure of an improvisational film. Um, and but even when we uh, did our reshoots and and actually uh, orchestrated each of the things, oh, the cat jumping out of the mm -hmm. out of the cabinet was was something that we did even even those moments were the the gags were there but the but the actors were left to kind of improvise it wasn't really nothing was ever scripted for that film mm -hmm. but it was like each of the events were kind of planned and and executed like a film mm -hmm. how much of the historical background of the story did you um you said that they already shot the interviews about um, what happened at the actual house. Did you watch that and try to incorporate uh, any of that? Or was that just something that sort of set up the stage for um, basically the well, haunted house, haunted house story? In your, in your European DVD, is there, does it start with the interviews with the, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so basically I kind of read read up on the background as I was flying to Louisiana. Um and the I think Paul Salomoff had done his research and and conducted those interviews. But once we had the interviews, then basically it's like documentary filmmaking. You go, okay, this soundbite really works and let's connect it to this soundbite and put a photograph of the mansion in here to 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 hide the edit in the in the audio so so it was really approached like a like a documentary mm -hmm. was there any other footage um that was shot that you didn't use um i mean there was a ton of footage shot the night of the haunted house mm. that we didn't use um and we just we tried to keep it uh you know if you take a 12 hours or a 10 hour kind of shoot that that cameras are rolling continuously for cameras so you've got a, a immense amount of uh, footage to kind of sort through but you know automatically you like 70 of it is just mm. noodling around and nothing very interesting so we we kept focusing it down to to as as dramatic a moments as we could as we could manufacture from the cast mm -hmm. And in terms of interviews and outside stuff? Um... I think we used pretty much everything, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. maybe there were a few sound bites that we left behind, but, mm. but um, 
yeah, I think we because uh, I think the the effectiveness of the movie is really dependent upon you knowing that backstory of, mm. uh, of Madame LaLaurie. And uh, I think the the ghost hunter part of the interview a ghost hunter like demonstration is a little bit lacking in credibility, let's say. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, I mean, I'd like to believe in ghosts, but but I, I, his explanation of things was not very good. <laughs> and I think he felt uh, uh, Troy, the the ghost hunter, felt like he had been kind of deceived into participating in the movie because he was approaching it like it was a real ghost hunting exhibition mm-hmm. uh, and didn't realize that it was that it was kind of a rigged uh, mm-hmm. feature film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read a comment that the equipment that he uh, uh, explains at the beginning that it was um, actual <laughs> ghost hunting equipment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, they use them, but but it but the way he explained it, I just watched the beginning just uh, before we uh, got on the on the uh, Skype on Zoom here, uh, and the way he explains that uh, the. Um, magnetometer or whatever it is is just so ludicrous and <laughs> makes no yeah. sense at all uh so i have to think that you know he's a little bit bogus but he i, I know he complained about the film after it was after it was released mm-hmm. <laughs> what's interesting is that there is um there is no music during the entire film was there a, a discussion on whether you should sort of try and spice it up a little bit with music, um, especially the ending? Uh, no, I think uh, we we kind of felt like it was that it needed to feel as raw and real as possible. And the addition mm-hmm. of music would add a layer of of artistry to it that, that it didn't really uh, require. So, and the idea that you know, when you when they first pull up to the house and you can hear the cicadas and the crickets and, and it's just insanely uh, noisy like the South is, you know, uh, that I think the, the natural sound of the movie kind of works in its favor. Mm-hmm. And, and when the chair goes flying in the in the attic, you know, it's such a raucous sound compared to the silence. Ah, we also shot the uh, we added a lot when i when i look back on it we also added the 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 seance that they do with the ouija board where mm-hmm. they communicate with charles and the shackles kind of tumbling out of the chimney i mean mm-hmm. uh, so it's almost like the skeleton of the movie was the night of shooting in the plantation house that yielded one really good moment which is the uh which is a flying chair. And then everything else is kind of uh, manufactured in post-production. Mm-hmm. I think what's great about the movie is really that it's, there's not a lot that's, that's happening. There's not a lot that's going on. And I think that realism that you talk about, I think if you accept that sort of realism, um, then it really becomes very effective just because the little things become so creepy. I'm thinking of the scene with a doll that they find inside the wall. And I mean, oh, that's... that's another thing we shot. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 
but yeah, I mean, this is not a big scene. This is not something where it, anything really happens to the characters. They just find a doll and that's really creepy. And for a moment you think that, oh, is this an actual child that was somehow buried there or yeah it's creepy <laughs> that's really good yeah i mean i you know i was so close to it and when you're that close to a movie you don't you don't really know anymore its effect on a fresh mind and mm -hmm. uh because we screened it in its first iteration which was just the night at the plantation house we screened it for an audience and and uh, people were not all that enthusiastic about it. And so that's what led mm -hmm. Kushner to, uh, I mean, uh, Peter Locke to to want to continue to add more and more and more elements to kind of pump up the movie. Um, and yeah, so it's interesting if we were, if we succeeded in kind of making those, those sections that we added feel like they're an organic part of the, original experience in the plantation house that's that's mm -hmm. cool how much were people aware when they watched the film for the first time that it's um a fictitious story i mean it's sold as a documentary there are no credits other than the credits for like the actual like the the, the characters who are uh, in the story but your name doesn't appear uh, on the film and well it's presented like it's real it's funny the so you you have like a very early version of it which i think my name was not on it at some point somebody decided to put my name on it and, oh. and and i was not happy about it because i i didn't really i didn't feel like it needed to have my name on it and i felt like i hadn't planned the movie in a way that it, i that i felt like authorship over it you know as a director mm -hmm. so i so i was a little upset but then the kind of foreign uh uh residuals started coming in i was like whoa okay <laughs> i'm okay with this <laughs> um but yeah the i think when people saw it at first they you imagine that it's a real documentary because the the performances are not they're not really acting they're kind of the 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 people that are participating are just being themselves and the interview style at the beginning of the movie kind of has the form of a documentary so i think people really i mean at a certain point you probably go when the cockroach pops out of the sandwich i'm i'm sure maybe <laughs> people go okay this is this is fake you know but but i think if it gives you the creeps then you know once you buy into the idea that this woman really existed and her and her torture of slaves was was really horrific it just infects your whole like emotional tone as you're watching the movie mm -hmm. it's interesting because it's really the first found footage film that i've seen um I mean, other than obviously if you, when people define found footage, including mockumentaries that are not horror films, then um, I mean, there are different films. Um, but this was the first horror found footage film that I've seen. And I saw it on um, on TV late during the night. Um, and I had heard of Blair Witch, um, but I hadn't seen it. And so I really wasn't sure if this was supposed to be a documentary or if it was, you know, just a horror film. And I was kind of, 
I was very skeptical by watching it, but still trying to figure out the first half of the movie, trying to figure out, okay, is this for real or are they trying to set things up? And that was a really interesting viewing experience. Did it actually affect you or give you the creeps as you were watching it? Yeah, those scenes, like for example, with the with the with the doll, mm-hmm. um, the scene with the cat, not so much because that's such a horror trope that you know there is a jumping cat somewhere <laughs> inside uh-huh. the house. Um, but I mean, it was set up in, in a way that I thought, okay, well, this could be still be real, and um, the rest of it. Yeah, I was still trying to figure out, okay, are they in an actual house where they think that actual ghosts are? Um, so, yeah, it was, was, um, was effective. I think they were, they were so, the, the four kids were so kind of uh, pumped up with the idea that this is a haunted house, that even as they were skeptical entering into it, they kind of that was in the back of their head. It's almost like when you're walking in the dark and you just imagine something behind you, uh, it can, I mean, I used to scare the hell out of myself, just unlocking my front door at night, just uh, imagining something back there. So I think it's the same thing. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Your imagination kind of fills in the blanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true, especially with ghost stories where it's more about imagining things and something that could be there, a presence that you feel that's that's it's so intangible in a sense, not like a monster movie where you kind of know that, okay, this is you see a monster and you just know that it's a fantasy kind of story. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, and in a ghost story, I think even the the most tiny occurrences of uh, of uh, the unreal kind of can give you can give you chills you know like just uh, something moving just a tiny bit you know so so the and i think uh the silence of the of the atmosphere kind of adds to that sensation too so the way i understand it is that the film was actually started before blair witch project came out is that right i don't think so i believe blair witch was the inspiration for Mm -hmm. doing a found footage film i think that that it seems to me that would be right, you know, because Blair Witch kind of did it. I wasn't a huge fan of Blair Witch, but the performances I thought in Blair Witch were really effective. I thought it was like a little bit too much, you know, shots of the ground and leaves and, and you know, uh, but it's undeniable how how successful that film was. It just uh, their their marketing, everything about it just drew people to to it and with drew people with the uh expectation that something scary was was gonna uh, overtake them and it really worked and i think um charles band and kushner Locke kind of saw that and and were trying for their own version of that mm-hmm. i see and the cheap and and the kind of new technology of cheap uh high eight video cameras you know just kind of opened up the world of found footage movies. Mm-hmm. So I think it was when it came out, it was very much, I mean, obviously Blair Witch had already come out when the San Francisco experiment was released. And so I think it was very much compared to, to Blair Witch um, at the time. And, and do you feel that was something that helped the film to get noticed that there was another film that was sort of like Blair Witch um, or that it was unfairly compared? I think it was, 
I mean, Blair Witch was uh, a an honest attempt to create something scary. Uh, in a way, St. Francisville was a little bit more of a calculated attempt to capitalize on something that was successful. And I think, um, you know, Kushner Locke and uh, Charles Band don't really have the, the or didn't at the time have the ability to to actually release a movie theatrically and turn it into a big success. And, and they didn't have the the kind of viral marketing team that uh, Blair Witch had. And once Blair Witch kind of all, had already used that kind of a marketing approach, you could, you know, it would be cynical to try to to do it again, you know, so soon. So, so I think Blair Witch had a lot of uh, strikes against it in terms of reaching an audience. And uh, Kushner Locke and Charles Band's their main business was direct to video movies, and so it became a direct to video movies. And in a way, that makes it more accessible for like slumber party uh movie watching you know and and i have a feeling and i'm not sure because i didn't really track the release of it that well but i have a feeling that that was kind of where blair where's uh, uh saint francisville got its audience was kind of in kids turning other turning their friends on to it and mm. uh trying to scare each other like telling ghost stories in the night mm. I actually think it was more effective because I saw it on TV um, than it would have been if I had seen it in a, in a movie theater. Huh, uh, interesting. Just because of the context, you know, it was something, I, I think they showed it around midnight. Um, that's something you catch on. I mean, I knew it was coming up. I saw, okay, it's a ghost story. Um, I was interested in watching that. But like I said, I didn't know whether it was a documentary or not. And so the context of it was, okay, are they showing me a documentary? Are they showing me a, a feature film? Is this part of a presentation? Um, I mean, I think there were one or two commercial breaks during the movie, just like you would have when you're watching a normal documentary <laughs> on something uh -huh. so i think that context actually helped uh, the film you know you know what that's an interesting uh thought uh that in a cinema you're surrounded by a hundred people and mm -hmm. your sense of isolation and possibility of a ghost creeping up on you from behind is is kind of nil whereas when you're at home and it's midnight and you're a kid watching a movie your imagination can really get the best of you. And for me, I, I grew up watching kind of the midnight horror thons on, on TV, like uh, Frankenstein and Dracula and all of the movies that, that were available in the 50s. And there is something kind of magical about being young and watching a movie in isolation like that. And, and, and I think it does, it probably is more uh conducive to kind of scaring yourself mm -hmm. absolutely and you sort of start playing the game in a sense sort of uh -huh. imagining yourself in that situation <laughs> i think okay would i dare to spend the night in this home even though i don't believe in ghosts but like we say we our mind plays tricks on us and would i dare to do that is that something <laughs> that i would you know so that <laughs> It's true. I, I want to believe in ghosts. And, and I, I'm like very skeptical. And, and so I disbelieve most accounts, but I want to believe. And so it's very easy for me to scare myself in, the, in that situation. You know? <laughs> 
actually my landlady told me that there is a ghost in the house uh, that I live in. This is a house here in, in Salzburg in the old part of the town that goes back to the 15th century. So it wow, has a lot of uh -huh. history. And she told me that there several people have seen a ghost here in the house, but apparently only on the fourth floor. And I, I told her, well, next time she sees him, that she should ask him to come downstairs because I'd like to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. So he's like creeping up on the floors above you? <laughs> apparently. Um, I, I mean, I don't know what the story is. She said it as an old monk, um, but... I don't know why he's he's haunting this house. I don't think it's a sort of tragedy connected to it. Just some sort of, you know, just because the house is old. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting to see a, a flying saucer and I'm still waiting to see a ghost. <laughs> and I hope that'll happen someday, you know. <laughs> oh, that will be cool. <laughs> There are a couple of moments in the St. Francisville experiment where there's a little bit of humor. And I was wondering, was that added by the by the protagonists themselves? Or was that added during the reshoots, like the exchange that they have when they find the dead bird, for example? What? They find the dead bird? Yeah, they if, have. A, oh, up in the uh, in the attic. Yeah, 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 yeah. All that is them. It's OK. It's there because. Uh, there was kind of an, uh, a, a bit of a tension set up between Madison and her kind of new agey uh, attitude of like, got to bless the house and Paul's kind of uh, cynicism about all of that. Uh, and then just the, the need for them to say something in, in, when they encounter anything unusual kind of led to some really goofy uh, exclamations. And, mm -hmm. and that was so, so it's really everything comes from them you know mm. the events that we added on at the end came from the filmmakers but their reactions are are all very honest mm -hmm. i see because that's a very cool moment when she asks how badly is it dead <laughs> yes i remember that yeah. yeah yeah that's all her you know <laughs> and i think it's just i mean maybe you just get in the moment that you're kind of agitated with fear just dumb stuff comes out of your mouth sometimes you know and i think that was definitely <laughs> one of those moments <laughs> there's also a moment where uh, i don't know which of the characters but they talk about why ghost hunters get frustrated when they go into haunted houses and he says that well because nothing ever happens when they go into haunted houses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's all i mean there were four people that really had to fill an evening with um, talk and exploration. And, and they were cast pretty well for that because they all kind of added a unique kind of um, point of view, you know, to the, oh. to the occurrences. Did you know anything about the casting process of how they were selected? No, I do not know anything about the cast. Oh. If you wanted to talk to Paul Salamoff, you could probably oh. find him uh, because that, you know, he, I think it must have been his idea that he brought to Kushner Locke or to Charles Band. And basically, I got brought in, and, and Dana Scanlon was like the Kushner Locke executive. So I kind of got brought into a situation that was, I think I was just there to make sure technically that we would get something usable. And so I kind of instructed the cast on, you know, how to 
you know, how to shoot what they were, how to cover kind of what they were, what, what they were going through. Um, but yeah, the cast was already established and, mm. you know, I just kind of had to work with them. Mm -hmm. And there is one shot, which I wanted to ask you if that was yours, but I suspect it was just created by um, uh, one of the actors. Um, that's um, one of the girls. I, I don't remember which one. Um, and she shines the flashlight sort of at herself and she casts this huge shadow um, at the ceiling in this room and it's a it's a really beautiful image and it sort of reminded me of all the 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 nosferatu images uh -huh. in the subspecies series obviously uh -huh. so <laughs> yeah I, that was probably something that we manufactured like uh, after you know in the in the reshoots because the, it, once we got involved with the reshoots then it was a much more kind of uh thought out process in terms of how to cover it, how to light it, how to, you know, you've got one flashlight in one hand, a camera in the other hand. When you put down the camera, how does that camera see what we want you to see? You know, so so mm -hmm. all the the lighting effects and, and the camera work was was much more kind of controlled in those reshoots. Mm -hmm. I imagine it's pretty tough to create that kind of look because it's supposed to look amateurish in a way, but you still wanted to, you know, to tell the story and to fulfill a certain function and still, you know, kind of look like a cool movie um, just on its own terms, right? Yeah, yeah, because it's really the camera is becomes the eye of the audience as they're traveling through space and the kind of shakiness of the camera kind of influences your own uh, nervous system. Uh, so, so we really put a lot of thought into, okay, how does this, how do we make this seem to be a subjective uh, camera held by this actor, but here hand, give it to me. So when it drops, I can make it kind of tumble over upside down or however it needs to be. And, capture you as you fall back onto the ground so it was it was kind of a, a choreography between camera actor and me there kind of also trying to to make sure that that it looked completely accidental but was completely planned you know mm -hmm. did you get another cinematographer involved for the reshoots no basically we had the the cameras Mm -hmm. uh in hand and uh that would be the starting point the actor with camera in hand and then mm -hmm. uh kind of like okay now give me the camera and i'll i'll kind of place it where it needs to be or let me walk alongside you with the camera so you're free to open the the door you know it was but but with those the you know the the movie had to be kind of Uh, lit by flashlight lit by kind of available light and camera in hand uh so there was really no need for to bring in a dp who could light things nicely mm -hmm. or any of that now you said that you didn't follow the release of the film too closely um how much did you um i don't know did you read the reviews did you um sort of gauge the first reactions by audiences <laughs> uh you know we uh we screened it a few times so i did see kind of the the audience reactions um 
I, I have learned to be real careful about reading reviews of your work because <laughs> just one bad review can like like upset you for days and days, you know. So uh, so I try, you know, and I felt with uh, St. Francisville, I felt uh, responsible up to a certain point, but not like I do for the subspecies films or for my mm -hmm. film Terror Vision, anything that I've really poured my soul into over a matter over a period of months this was kind of like a accidentally dropped into a middle of a of a production uh did the best I could with what we had to shoot and then brought as much filmmaking uh technique as I could to the reshoots um but the but because the idea wasn't mine to begin with I I wasn't I didn't feel like I said like any kind of author authorial kind of uh responsibility for it um but i i'm always curious you know so i would read the reviews and read the bad reviews and read the good reviews and and i got the sense that it was effective with people of a certain age you know that that mm. teenagers uh would get together at slumber parties and and turn their friends on to it and that's kind of the story of my film Terrorvision too was like a comedy horror movie but um it got awful reviews when it first came out and oh. uh was just savaged everywhere and yet it appeals to a certain kind of person a certain oddball kind of person and there's enough of those oddball kind of people around that they would turn their friends onto it and over a number of years that film has gained an incredible reputation and an incredible audience of uh, young hip people you know of of today you know so I'm kind of as as uh heartbroken as I was when the movie first came out mm -hmm. I'm kind of satisfied now that it that it was out enough outside of its uh time uh, when it was made and was so different from any movie that had been made at the time that People didn't understand how to deal with it. And yet it it's it finds an audience, you know, and subspecies, the same thing. And I think St. Francisville, I don't know how what, what the longevity of St. Francisville is, if it's uh if people are still turning their friends onto it, or if it's been kind of like uh washed under by the by the ongoing tide of more oh. films and more films uh, and didn't quite stand out enough. Uh so yeah, I mean, I I followed it, but I didn't agonize over it like I might have, you know. Mm. Yeah, I think these days it's sort of seen as one of many found footage films. I guess critics are always tough on horror movies, um, and I mean, horror movies have become more mainstream over the years, but still, it's still something that um, you find very few horror movies where you actually read a lot of good reviews and people say, well, this is a very enjoyable and, and this is worth your time and what have you. And yeah. uh -huh. I mean, if back in the, in the old millennium, so to speak, I mean, it was sort of like a, almost, I think, a, uh, like a badge of honor when you got really terrible reviews from <laughs> notable critics. <laughs> and, and, I mean, me as a horror fan, I would sometimes really seek out the films that um, really got, got the worst reviews, reviews by... <laughs> <laughs> Just because I knew, okay, they were offering something different, like you said about television. I mean, it's it's there's something in there that's not um, part of that mainstream that's uh, somehow 
uh, against the norm in in a sense. So I discovered a lot of great films just by going <laughs> through the bad reviews. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, that, that's a that's a that's actually a good way to do it. You know, because a lot of the horror movies of today that that gain a lot of critical acclaim are seem weak to me compared to some of the great horror movies that have been made so so yeah maybe that's the trick i'll, I'll start i'll take you up on that advice you know <laughs> and give it a try yeah because really horror movies are supposed to be kind of like the renegade movies mm -hmm. and uh and they shouldn't really appeal to to mainstream critics they should there should be a whole set of horror film critics and i guess they're they're just fans horror film fans that kind of spread the word Mm. And I think it helps a horror film when it's not part of that mainstream because horror films are at their most effective when you don't know what you're going to expect, when you don't know how far the filmmaker is going to go, when you think that, okay, there's there might be something in there that could be really disturbing or that might really put <laughs> off a lot of people. And uh -huh. sort of that's, that can be the appeal. That's something that, you know, maybe they're going at, that's, maybe they're arriving at something else in, in a sense. Yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess that's the, you know, I mean, Charles Band has has been making movies for, you know, since the 70s. And all of his movies, they, none of them are super successful. They're mostly home video releases. But he's got a legion of fans around the world. Uh, because, because of that, they're, they're like movies that are kind of made specifically for fans not for anybody else yeah it's true and you kind of know that okay this is going to be fun and this is going to be yeah you know just just different it's be in a sense cheap and a little bit shabby but uh yeah. but it'll sort of have the homemade quality you know mm. i think it may be in a way st francisville if it's a, effective in scaring young people as they're watching it that's really good i think the the reason behind its making was a little bit too uh, commercial and not mm. didn't come from the heart like a like a good movie should come from your heart. And so if it didn't gain or didn't uh, stand the test of time quite as well as like mm. something like Blair Witch, it's probably comes from that from the, the motivation for making the movie in the first place. And the fact that it, that that not enough resources were were put into the filmmakers hands to actually make it mm -hmm. uh make it as effective as it should have been i mean if they had tricked out that house with a number of haunted house uh, uh effects it you could have scared the hell out of those kids in there and maybe gotten something really interesting mm -hmm. have you ever thought about making another found footage film uh, you know what? There was a period right after Blair Witch and after St. Francisville that I pitched some other found footage films to mm -hmm. uh, to Kushner Locke, and none of them really took off. And uh, yeah, I would consider it because there's it's an interesting exercise in technical filmmaking to try to make it seem uh, immediate as a found footage film needs to be. On the other hand, I'm more interested in telling stories with uh, with cameras and oh. with um, production designers and a cinematographer and beautiful lighting and interesting locations. That interests me more as a filmmaker. So, so mm -hmm. I kind of pursue those kind of movies more vigorously. Mm.
And when I, when I imagine a, a, a movie to write, I think more in terms of telling a real story than, than trying to do mm -hmm. a found footage film. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that film Wreck, uh, REC, Mm -hmm. uh, the Spanish film is, I think is an amazing found footage film. You know, there's like some really great ones. Yeah. But... It's an interesting genre. I mean, it's just a completely different genre, I think, in terms of the storytelling and the mood is so important and the, the, the feeling of being there is somehow, uh, more important than an actual construction of a story because the story is usually, uh, okay. Some people go to a certain place to film, to find out something and well this is what happened yeah i think the 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 actual sense of the sense of reality that you get from the the whole the kind of documentary form blended with the with the found footage uh so, like automatically gives you more uh adds tension to the to the story um mm. and i did actually i i actually outlined another found footage film just in the last five years or so that that I think would have been really fun to do but again never you know never really got it off the ground but I think the 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 idea that, that found footage films is a genre that that will continue to be a part of cinema is uh, you know is interesting and and it certainly kind of is a great way to tell stories in a in a different way, you know, in a way that forces the forces the filmmaker to kind of come up with new solutions, you know. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting how it sort of reflects our our everyday life. I mean, during the first wave of of found footage films, I mean, yes, people some people had camcorders and were able to record stuff. Um, but nowadays, when everybody has a camera on their iPhone and everybody films just everyday situations all the time, and that's sort of when you see a found footage film nowadays, it's sort of very natural. You don't have to ask, okay, why are they filming this? Because yeah, they're filming all the time. It's uh, we all have the technology in our pockets. And... Yeah, yeah. And I wonder, uh, you know, I wonder why we haven't seen more found footage films for that very reason. You know, why, or maybe I'm missing them or something, or maybe the image of a of an iPhone is like too pristine and perfect for mm. the sense of grainy reality that that found footage films have you know i mean like i worked on uh, texas chainsaw massacre the very mm. first uh, film and the the sense of reality from the 16 millimeter and from the mm. graininess and from the kind of just uh, tawdry locations uh made that movie very effective and i think uh mm -hmm in a way same thing with Blair Witch the the kind of simplicity of the visual design of it made it more effective and and mm -hmm. St. Francisville the the kind of the way that the cameras don't reveal everything they're they they're there's still darkness and out of focus and all of that that you can't really achieve so easily with a with an iPhone camera mm -hmm. and any iPhone camera found footage film is going to look more like a feature film just because the camera's so good, you know? That's an interesting thought. Yeah, I think, like you say, the grittiness of the image um, really plays into that mood. And 
I mean, also most found footage films are also shakier than you people would usually handle a camera in a, in a sense. Um, I yeah, mean, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that's because the whole idea needs to be these amateurs actually just captured something extraordinary. You know? And sort of by accident, in a sense. No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of course, is one of the great examples of what I, I was talking about with a, a film where you don't know how far it's going to go, where you don't know <laughs> yeah. what to expect. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that film took everybody by surprise, including us who worked on it. You know, it was turned out so much better than we imagined it was going to. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing milestone. Yeah, yeah, definitely is. Yeah. So you were off to a great start with um, <laughs> starting off on, on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. As yeah, I was very lucky, very lucky in my career to, to have had that experience and uh, an experience on a movie called Roar, which, mm -hmm. uh, do you know that film, uh, Tippi mm -hmm. Hedren and Noel Marshall? Yeah, with, with Jan de Bond as a... Yeah, as a yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, I've had some crazy experiences in making movies. Yeah, I mean, you have a lot of cult movies on your... Um, on your CV, I mean, films like Transfers and Ghoulies, and of course the subspecies series. I mean, uh, we could do an entire podcast on the subspecies uh -huh. series. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> that's for sure, man. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. We we shot all those in in Romania, you know, in the in the 90s, and now Romania is too expensive and too overrun by Hollywood studio films. Mm, so wow. we had to shoot the latest um, subspecies in Serbia. Oh, and okay. So it was like had a totally different kind of. I mean, it's the same vibe of subspecies, but a totally mm -hmm. different kind of feeling and crew and acting and everything it was mm -hmm. really interesting experience. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing it. I mean, just ah, the sense cool. of location of the original subspecies films, I think, is amazing. The <laughs> the, uh, the castle that you found and just the. Um, in the second film, the Opera House in Bucharest. Yeah, kind of we were I mean, so, that is so amazing. Lucky. Yeah, that the uh, uh, Romania back in the '90s, before Hollywood kind of came in and changed the economics. I mean, oh. we filmed in in monasteries and churches, and I think maybe we ruined shooting in churches because <laughs> after that, uh, the the Orthodox <laughs> Church said no more filming in our churches. You know? <laughs> Uh, but we got away with it. We could go down into into crypts, and I mean, it was anything was on anything was possible back in those days. Now it's like more expensive and not so possible. Uh, Serbia had a lot of the same. Didn't have the castles quite like the the spectacular castles of Romania, but it had unique kind of places that we were able to to utilize for the film and. An incredible crew, an incredible director of photography. So, uh, so yeah, I'm really excited to to see it with an audience. Are you going to come to Europe for a couple of screenings? I would love to if anybody ever invited me. Yeah, yeah, mm. I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm hoping so because I I think there is a there is an audience of people that appreciate the subspecies films in mm. Europe as well. I mean, we had. Uh, 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 Miroslav Lakobria, you know, the, the makeup effects artist of Serbia mm -hmm. who did uh, a Serbian film, oh, okay. uh, worked on the film with us and, 
And when I first met him, he said, oh, I'm so happy to be here because uh, I was a big fan of subspecies when I was a kid. So I'm like, wow, okay, that's like, mm. I mean, I, I don't know if it was bootleg copies that kind of made it all over Europe or <laughs> if it was Sky TV or how, how people managed to see the films. Mm. Yeah, a little bit of both, I think. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> bootleg tapes, um, of course, the video stores, um, some of those versions were cut, obviously, but... Um, still we're trying to see everything i guess and uh -huh. then you, you you sort of at that time you always had those late night showings on tv um on, on some of the channels where they had you know all the horror films or the all the independent and the b movies and that sort of thing so that was a great way to discover a lot of a lot of films yeah that's great yeah and i'm all for like bootlegging if that's the only way that people can see the movies that i've done you know it's like um you know, just, I'm just happy that people are able to see the films because sometimes mm. some of them are not available, you know, in any other way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've seen quite a few of your movies, but some of them are just um, very tough to find. I mean, yeah, some of them have yeah. been released on VHS back in the 90s and uh, there's just no, no version of it anymore. Yeah, now Charlie Band is... He has his own streaming service, uh, Full Moon mm. Features or Full Moon, uh, that's part of Amazon Prime. So he's trying to gather up a lot of the movies that he made back in the day and and put mm. them up on his streaming service. Mm -hmm. But he, some of them he can he can find the negative and and you know create 4K versions, and some of them are just exist on VHS and mm. beta tape, and that's about it. The, the second Leprechaun movie that you did, I think that, for example, is, I think there, there's a VHS release and that's about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sad about that because those kids movies that I got to direct were, I thought were really fun and, you know, mm. were, were kind of, they're low budget and a little bit shabby in places, but they're also really, the, the Leprechaun movies, the, the cast were fantastic, I thought. Mm. And yeah. Dragon World, my film Dragon World finally has a, 4k uh release and it's oh wow. looks beautiful you know oh wow yeah, it's on amazon amazon prime you can i have the it. the old dvd ah um, sweet man uh-huh yeah i got this yeah. one and this is the first leprechaun movie wow cool that's great man yeah the transfer no, the... of both of them isn't great um but hey it's a way to see them so um yeah that's the thing like dragon world uh, in the 4K version is widescreen and it really, mm -hmm. you know, makes a big difference mm. to the film. Okay. Well, maybe this, hopefully this version will reach Europe too, because I think yeah. uh, David Allen's work on the dragon is, is just so amazing. I mean, that's, yeah. uh, that makes the entire movie, I think. It's, it's really, yeah. really fun to watch. He was really, yeah. And his shop created the, the big dragon head too you know mm. uh not only the stop motion effects but the but the giant head and yeah it, that movie was unique in the charlie band world because we really had the budget to to kind of do what we wanted to do mm. until we ran out of money and then and then they sent us to romania to finish it <laughs> we oh. shot like weeks in the uk and then the weather was so terrible that we get got behind schedule so they sent us to romania to finish it okay <laughs> <laughs> well those are the adventures of a 
independent filmmaker, I guess. There's <laughs> exactly. always something happening and just, just sort of have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, you got to adapt to the circumstances for sure. <laughs> <laughs>